Well, good morning. <laughs> you guys have no idea what's about to happen. I do. I do, but you don't, because I've had the privilege of spending time in what we're about to encounter, and I promised you when we started in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, and entered into this complex kind of odd portion of scripture, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that when we get to the end of 11, that what we thought was the pinnacle at the end of 8, saying, therefore now nothing can separate us from the love of God, that you will actually discover that it is at the end of 11 that we encounter things so wondrous that we will realize 8 was just the, get, the, the, the beginning, just the starting point. And today, we actually move our way to the end of chapter 11. So we are going to encounter what we have been traveling toward all of this time from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 11 so that we enter into chapter 12, uh, as I promised, in view of God's mercy. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I hope you're ready because this is going to be unbelievable. Uh, how many of you guys have siblings? Any, anybody here siblings? Look at that. How many? So beautiful. <laughs> siblings are so beautiful. Um, you know, siblings are an interesting group of people uh, because they know they belong to the same family and they, they, they know that they love each other, theoretically. <laughs> um, but you also have to live with these people. Um, and, and so there is this natural reality that when you're siblings, though there is a beauty in your belonging, uh, there is still a rivalry that goes on. I mean, that's just kind of a natural part of being siblings, right? And so remember that Paul uh, is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome uh, in, in the, uh, the, the, the uh, anticipation of him moving his headquarters from Antioch to Rome. And he's writing into a church that is a mixed church of Jewish people, ethnic Israel, and Gentile people, all the other tribes, tongues, and nations that have come together under Christ as one family. And to add to the sibling rivalry that occurs in this particular space, remember that there is a deep, long history between ethnic Israel and the rest of the nations, the Gentiles, but also in this particular context, there's a, there's a bit of a rub, right? Because the, the church was founded by the Jewish believers, then uh, some Gentile believers joined the church, and so you saw the adopting in of these Gentile believers. You're part of the family now. We've been part of the family a long time, but now you are. Okay, we're cool with that. Then the Jewish people were kicked out of Rome, and so the Gentiles took over the church leadership. They had to, had no choice. Then the Jewish people returned a few years later to find the church now, uh, as one would expect, uh, running just great with the Gentiles in leadership, and then the Jewish leadership comes back in, and now there's a shared leadership and a shared church, and it's, a, it's actually a beautiful thing that, that God worked it that way so that they really all own this thing, but it also creates naturally some rivalry, right? So Paul's writing into this about the gospel, and Romans lends itself to that rivalry, doesn't it? Because Romans, Paul is sequentially working through, demonstrating that whether you are Gentile or whether you are Jew, whether you're ethnic Israel or one of the other tribes, tongues, and nations on the planet, that really at the end of the day, uh, you are as undeserving of God's mercy 
as everybody else, and and yet, what a glorious grace that you are a recipient of God's mercy, like everybody else. And so in his back and forth, every time he's dealing with one of the particular siblings, the other sibling's going, amen, you you tell him. Mm. Just like we do, dad's on the sibling, right? And you're like, "What what a fool. I, I mean, I told dad, just FYI, I told him he shouldn't have done that. Oh, and dad sort of looks over like, we'll talk to you in just a minute, right? So that's what, that's what we kind of have uh, as this underlying reality. And so you see it, right? Chapter one, book of Romans. Uh, who, who agrees the Gentiles are pagan sinners and don't deserve the mercy of God and are super lucky they have it? All the Jews say, amen. I mean, they should have seen it in the clouds and the stars, you know, God displayed his wonder in nature. They had no excuse. <laughs> Amen. Chapter two. You who just judge the Gentiles, <laughs> you're just as bad as they are. Gentiles say, Amen. <laughs> Jewish pagans, unbelievable. <laughs> Chapter two. You're as undeserving as them. Chapter three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Then chapter four and chapter five. Uh, we have this whole unpacking of why we all fell short in Adam and why Jesus is the solution. And so we see this beautiful unpacking of the peace of God coming through his redemptive story. And then we get into chapter six, uh, continues to unpack that into seven. And seven begins to go, okay, Jewish people, remember, uh, once it was a written code, uh, once it was the circumcision that made you temporarily belong But really, there was a bigger thing going on. God was revealing himself to all nations. And so the Gentiles are kind of sitting there going, yeah, just keep preaching it, brother. (laughs) And then chapter 8 was bringing us all together. Oh my gosh, what the law was incapable of doing and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Christ did in his death, uh, life, death, and resurrection, right? And now we have the spirit of God, oh my goodness, and, and we are a belonging people, and nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we, and we came to the end of eight, and it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, if you are in Christ, you are saved, you are a belonging child of God, you are awesome. End of eight, remember, end of eight, hands go up, Jewish people. This sounds incredible, okay? But um, just out of curiosity, our Jewish kinsmen that did not accept the Messiah, they worked their tails off. They, they, they're circumcised. They, they're part of the circumcision covenant. They, 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 they're doing the law. They've done the law. So, so they worked really hard, assuming they still belong, right? And then what did Paul do in 9? He began the journey 9, 10, and 11. Guys, they, they, they don't belong belonging is not by your bloodline, belonging is by faith. And so it is not that you are a child of Abraham in flesh, but a child of Abraham in faith. And in chapter nine, he he reconfigures what it means even to be Israel, right? He says, you are not Israel because you have a bloodline, you're Israel because you have a faith. That is your forefather's faith, Abraham's faith. And we'll, we'll get to that. And then nine, 10, and 11, you're sort of in the space where it's a lot of Jewish talk. Nine and 10 in particular, beginning of 11, and what are the Gentiles doing? Amen. <laughs> Amen. I mean, you, you all should have seen this. And in chapter 11, from one through 11, is that final push where, where Paul says, look, 
the Jewish people had everything available to them that the Gentile people didn't. They should have known the Messiah. They should have seen him. They should have, more than anybody else, gotten this right. When it mattered most, they blew it, and the Gentiles saw it. So when you say, my ethnic Israel kinsmen, just because they rejected the Messiah, they did everything else right, they rejected the Messiah. I mean, this is the big one. Even the Gentiles that shouldn't have seen him saw him. And the Gentiles say, mm. amen. And then chapter 11, verse 11 through 25, what does Paul do? He diverts all of his attention to the Gentiles, right? That's the moment when he's like, okay, enough amening. Done, done with this. We're gonna talk. And he says to the Gentiles, you all amening up and down because of course they deserve to be rejected. Of course they deserve God's severity. Of course they deserve judgment because they didn't receive the Messiah. You have no idea what God is up to. You think you see, but you don't see. So allow me to unpack it for you. And that was last week when we saw the beauty of God's grace and mercy toward the Gentiles, the the tribes, tongues, and nations that are not ethnic Israel, in that off this tree that the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, were a part of some of the branches of ethnic Israel were removed from the tree in their rejection of the Messiah so that to, as to make room for the Gentiles to be grafted in. So Paul literally goes, instead of amening all day long, you ought to be saying thank you to God and you ought to be looking at the Jewish uh, ethnic Israel kinsmen of your brothers in this church and your sisters in the church and saying, oh my goodness, I grieve for their part of the story right now because their part of the story is part of God's giant grand story of redemption to give me room on this tree so that I might be the recipient of life from the roots of Christ. And you ought to be unbelievably blown away, standing in judgment. What arrogance! And that was last week, right? Stop being arrogant. This should drive you to your knees in, in great, uh, gr- great awe of God and his wonder. And, and with a, a, a zeal to go preach the gospel to all tribes, tongues, and nations, including uh, ethnic Israel that have not yet believed. And now, as we close out 11, he's going to take what he started with the Gentiles. And he is going to finalize this thought. And in so doing, the Spirit of God through Paul is going to show us the expansive extent of God's mercy. In a way that if we see this now in clarity, we're going to go, you have got to be kidding me. What God has been doing that is seemingly a act of lack of mercy is in fact the grandest act of mercy. You ready? You better be because we're going. <laughs> Romans chapter 11, go there. Romans chapter 11, page 1049. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided or if you're using your own Bible or a smart device, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. Okay, so page 1049, Romans eleven twenty-five. And Paul has just uh, uh, finished out this little piece where he's been talking to the Gentiles about their grafting in as a result of uh, some uh, some of ethnic Israel being removed from the tree. But remember he said, the beauty is God used ethnic Israel to reveal himself to all tribes, tongues, and nations and to bless all tribes, tongues, and nations. Now he will use all tribes, tongues, and nations, the Gentiles, uh, to make Israel jealous in so doing, grafting them back into the tree that they have been removed from. So God's mercy is circular 
always using each of the players in the story to demonstrate his wonder to the other players so that they might be recipients of his mercy. And now he says, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So this is not a a start of a new paragraph that's going to bring new revelation. He's saying the reason, Gentiles, that I just told you all of this, of how God's grand redemptive story is unfolding, is so that you will not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, seeing the story only as you see it, not seeing what God is up to, so that you will make assumptions and judgments that are inappropriate and incorrect and untrue, and therefore become arrogant and become judges instead of being in awe and becoming worshipers of God. I do not want you to see this without knowing what God is up to. So the Spirit of God is about to show you, as he has been doing, how this circular reality of using ethnic Israel to reveal God to the nations and bless them through the Messiah, to use the nations to bless ethnic Israel, to to graft them in as well, so that God is faithful to all tribes, tongues, and nations who will all be represented in their portions in Revelation chapter 7. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, so he's about to show us how this all goes down, and we are going to see the mercy of God at work in invisible places we could never have imagined before. Now, just so you know, when he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, this is not a quote from the Old Testament, but it is in the Old Testament on numerous occasions. So remember, whenever a Jewish person in Paul's time was making a statement, kind of like using a movie quote in a sentence, and you attach to the movie quote and like, eh, Paul, perhaps not to the Gentiles, but for himself, uses this particular language with intent because listen to what it says in the Old Testament about if we are wise in our own eyes, okay? Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment for your bones. When we are wise in our own eyes, it is the, it is the slow dismantling of our flesh and bones. It is a weary endeavor, being wise in your own eyes. Hear me, folks. Wise in your own eyes, stupid. Okay? Listen to this. Uh, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? Question mark. There is more hope for a fool than for him. I love that one. When you are wise in your own eyes, you are worse than a fool. There's more hope for a fool than someone who thinks they see rightly and are not paying attention to what is grander than what they see. Do you see Paul's heart for the Gentiles? I don't want you to be a fool. I don't want you to be destructive. I don't want you to be weighty. I don't want you to be a judge. I don't want you to be arrogant. I want you to be a worshiper of God in all of his mercy because that will bring you life. So I don't want you to be a fool in your own eyes and be unaware of the mystery brothers. This is not mystery as in a mystery to be solved. This is what was once not revealed that is now revealed. I am, Paul is saying, revealing to you the mystery of God's redemptive story, the mystery of the gospel, and how God is at work behind the curtain while we are at work in front of the curtain, both participating together, not because he needs us, but because he invites us. And I want you to be unaware, brothers, of how this mystery works. That's why I told you this. So let's go on and see what I can summarize for you out of the passage I've just unpacked, right? Watch. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of of the Gentiles has 
come in. So remember what Paul showed the Gentiles is that while you stand amening the rejection of the Messiah by a portion of Israel, ethnic Israel, what you don't realize is that rejection by a portion of ethnic Israel is what made room for you on the tree. And as God has affected a partial uh, rejection of ethnic Israel of the Messiah, he is doing that until the fullness of the Gentiles are brought into the tree. This is an extraordinary statement. God is saying, I am working the grand story of redemption in ways you can't imagine, making room on the tree until all the branches of all tribes, tongues, and nations and their remnants are grafted into the tree. And in that time, there will be a partial uh, rejecting of the Messiah by Israel. Now, this partial doesn't mean that there will be a partial time in history that they are rejecting. So it doesn't mean all of ethnic Israel will reject the Messiah for a portion of history while I get all the Gentiles that belong in, in, and then I'll let let Israel back in. This is not what it's saying. It's saying that throughout the redemptive story, there will be a partial hardening of the hearts of a part part of ethnic Israel. So remember how he said there will always be a remnant? He's literally showing us now, not only will there always be a remnant of those who believe so that my faithfulness to all tribes and tongues and nations continue, but there will also be a partial hardening. In other words, those who are not part of the remnant, they will continue on in their hardness uh, throughout the redemptive story until what? Until all of the Gentiles that I am bringing into the tree are in. That should be an incredible thing for us. I'm going to continue in my faithful story so that I bring into the tree all who belong to this tree that I, have, uh, that, I, that I am showing mercy to from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But in that, I will continue my faithfulness to ethnic Israel in a remnant, and I will continue to harden a portion in their rejection of the Messiah because that continues the story of the Gentile redemption while I'm redeeming Israel. You see what's going on here? It's like watching a master spinning thousands of plates and going, you have no idea how I'm spinning all these plates, but I'm spinning all of them. So stop fussing about what plate you are and be in awe of your part in the story. Watch, 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 watch. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this is interesting because now we stand in a bit of a dilemma. If you read it at first and you go, okay, hold on. So you're saying that there's a time where a portion of Israel will be hardened uh, as the Gentiles are grafted in. And then the remnant of Israel will continue uh, to be grafted in along with the Gentiles. And then all of Israel until all of Israel is saved. So that means that all of Israel will be saved. All of ethnic Israel now belong to Jesus, which seems to contradict what he's been saying in 9, 10, and 11 so far, that not all of ethnic Israel are going to be saved. Because wasn't that the question in the beginning of 9? So hold on. I know we're saved because we know Jesus, uh, but what about our our ethnic uh, Israelite kinsmen? Are they saved because they have the circumcision, the law, and the prophets, and the history? And Paul said no. But now he's saying All this is happening until all of Israel is saved. So they are all saved then, right? You're confused, aren't you? Turn back with me to chapter 9. 
let's remember how Paul rewrote the definition of what he means by all of Israel, okay? There is ethnic Israel, and they are the Gentiles, but then there is another version of this that he has redefined, chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And then if you read on, what does he say? He says there, we are defining the children of God, and the children of God we are defining not all who are people that by flesh, by blood belong to Abraham are actually Israel. Israel is now those who belong to God by the faith of Abraham, which includes some who are not of the flesh of Abraham. That is the conclusion. Not all who are of the flesh of Abraham belong to Abraham, and yet many who are not of the flesh of Abraham belong to Abraham. And so when he says, listen to what he's doing here, he's going like this. Ethnic Israel, a partial hardening, a portion of them will remain hard throughout the redemptive story while a portion will remain a remnant, right, to make room for the Gentiles until the fullness of time where all of my people, all of Israel, ethnic Israel, and every tribe, tongue, and nation have been brought into the tree so that my faithfulness is demonstrated to whom? All tribes, tongues, and nations. All. This is what's going on. So while you're standing around as siblings in the church, Jews and Gentiles, going, eh, you pagans should thank your lucky stars that God saved you. And then they're going, you Jewish people should thank your lucky stars and kick you out. You you all need to stop it, he's saying. You all need to get on your knees and thank God that he was merciful to any of you because you are all as equally deserving of his severity, right? Right? And when you think he's being unfaithful to one group while being faithful to another or choosing one sibling over another for a portion of history, you couldn't be more mistaken because he is always utilizing the entire redemptive story to demonstrate himself to all siblings in the story. Watch, now it gets cool. So, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And you see there the deliverance, not of an ethnic nation from other nations, but the deliverance of humanity from sin. Do you see that? So, I I love this quote because he's going, the Messiah didn't come to save Israel from Rome. The Messiah came to save his people from sin and death. Okay. Verse 28. Oh my goodness. Buckle up. This is unreal. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. What on earth does that mean? As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers, right? Oh, because God's promises are irrevocable. What does that mean? Okay, we're back in Romans chapter nine and 10 now. You remember what I told you about Romans chapter nine and 10? 
Romans chapter 9 was God's part in the story, a part we can hardly conceive, a part we can hardly understand, a part we can hardly uh, even, uh, even grasp in any way, but it is a part we ought to know because it gives us the security that the story is not in our hands, it's in his hands, right? So he takes chapter 9 and he goes, who are you, O oh man? The clay, and who am I? The potter, and the potter does what he wants with the clay, and he's doing just fine with the clay, so stop trying to figure out what I'm up to. I am developing this redemptive story the way I want, and I am choosing as I see fit because I am good and righteous, and I am the one who can. That was our portion of dictator, right? Dictator God, how dare he be? Oh no, oh no. He is the absolute essence of, of rightness and goodness and justice and mercy and grace. He has absolutely every reason to be the one writing the story. Romans 9. It's what's behind the curtain. Just know while you're doing your thing, going about your business, expressing your faith, sharing the gospel with people, don't feel the weightiness of producing the story because know that God is already at work under the hood in the engine. You're just pushing gas pedals and brakes and steering wheels. And the reason Romans chapter 9 exists, I mean chapter 10 exists, is because God doesn't do it without you. He invites you to be a participant not only in your own salvation and in your own sanctification, but also in the salvation and sanctification of others. In other words, wherever the redemptive story is at work, you get to play a part. You shouldn't. I shouldn't, but we do. How gracious is our God that he not only rescues us in being recipients of his grace and mercy and redemption, but he allows us the purpose of being restored to being participants in making him known as we know him by carrying the gospel into the world and by working diligently on our own sanctification. But will God finish every story he begins? Yes, will he make all things new? Yes, will he finish the redemptive story as it ought to be? Yes, so while you participate, should you be afraid? No, fearless in our journey, fearless in watching sin defeated in us, even though sometimes we feel like sin is defeating us, fearless in carrying the gospel, even though we may be rejected by the world because we are not the ones producing the wonder of redemption he is, but we are the ones participating. Okay, so that was Romans 10, you get to participate. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. You see, there is a tangible participation here. But Romans 9 just said, but, but he's at work doing the saving. Yes and yes. Yes and yes. He's at work behind the curtain, and you observe certain things. Run with what you see because that's your participation. And then in Romans chapter 10, what does it say? Uh, if, if, if you don't go, they will not hear. And if they do not hear, then how are they supposed to believe? But you just said in Romans chapter 9, you got it covered. The rocks will cry out if we don't. Yes, but you get to participate. Do you see the beautiful tension between these two worlds? One is behind the curtain, election. And one is in front of the curtain, the gospel. And we see the gospel and we participate in the gospel, and we see how the gospel plays out, and that plays out in tangible ways. If I believe and I confess, I am saved. If I preach and someone believes and confesses, they are saved. If they reject for now, I don't know what their future is, but I know what their present is. They're not yet saved, right? As far as God's election is concerned, trust him. You with me? That's what he just said. He said to the arrogant Gentiles who were going, amen, those silly Jewish people rejected the Messiah when they had every reason not to. And because of that, they were cut off from the tree and they deserve the severity of God. You arrogant Gentiles. 
Don't you realize that as far as the gospel is concerned, in other words, what you can observe, certainly they seem to be enemies of God right now, right? And they are enemies for what reason? For your sake. So when you see them as enemies, instead of judging them in arrogance, what you ought to do is feel deep compassion for the preaching of the gospel to them. Because if they are enemies of God, as far as the gospel is concerned, as far as you can see, as far as you can know, and as far as you ought to know, should you not feel a deep sense of compassion for them and a deep sense of gratitude toward God that he would have made room for you on the tree? Yes. So as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies, and for whose sake? Yours. But don't worry, because as far as election is concerned, they are not enemies as a nation. They have not been rejected as a nation. God has a remnant throughout history, and he is fulfilling his promises to them. So don't pretend to see things through your own eyes and make yourself a fool. There are things at work in this story you cannot know and know that God knows them. And just when you think someone is God's enemy, well, he may be up to something you have no idea. And just when you think someone's God's friend, you have no idea. So stick with what you can see. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord so that you might be saved. Preach the gospel until others do the same and stop fussing around about who's who and what plays where and what God is up to because you have no idea. And I'm telling you all this so that you will not be wise in your own sight. What you ought to realize is that God is writing a grand redemptive story without your counsel. And he's got it covered. And he will get it right. And you get to be a part of it. And that should drive a great confidence in who you are in Christ and in what you get to do for Christ. Amen? We're not done yet. For the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will always fulfill his promises. Now, here we go, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Mercy. You have no idea what we just read, because if you did, you would, be, you would be jumping up and down screaming. No, legit, not kidding. Watch this. Our clarity of God's mercy toward us only arrives when we realize we were completely undeserving of his grace. If we think we did anything to affect, to solicit, to deserve his grace, then we will not understand his mercy. Because if we do not face the depravity of our own souls and our absolute disobedience to God and realize that despite our depravity, he loved us while we were dead in our transgressions because of his great love, he made us alive in Christ. If we miss that, if we think we came to some conclusion or some clarity, the Gentiles think they saw Jesus in a way the Jews didn't. The Jews think they worked hard 
to deserve the Messiah in any way, then we will not know the mercy of God because mercy and its expansive nature is a direct result of understanding the nature of how undeserving you are of it. So if you believe in any way that your disobedience toward God is minimal or less than someone else, the consequence to you will be that you will not understand the depths of God's mercy. That is why, quite honestly, I am so passionate about the realities found in these chapters because I believe that when we think we somehow brought to the table our faith as a gift to God and because of that, he was good enough to save us, what we do to our souls is we undo the mercy of God because we know we played a little important part. And because we played our little important part, he saved us. And because others don't play their little important part rightly, he doesn't save them. We bring a gift to him. He repays us. This is not mercy. And so what he just said here is this. Gentiles, do you realize that for a period of history, (laughs) the clarity of your insanity was obvious? Romans chapter 1, right? You had every reason to see me, but you didn't. And so you behaved in disobedience. And that was clear to you, clear to the Jewish people, clear to me. And I displayed it to you. And so when it came time for you to be grafted into the redemptive story, the clarity was you were once disobedient and yet I rescued you. Is that not awesome? Oh, that's awesome. The trouble is that your siblings, the ethnic Israel people, they've been working their tail off for centuries to stay close to me. Now, now, don't get me wrong. They did a poor job. And don't get me wrong. They were an adulterous people. And don't get me wrong. Their disobedience is as obvious as the sun in the sky, right? But it's not as obvious to us humans, is it? Because when we've worked a little hard, we always grade on a scale, don't we? I mean, I worked harder than the Gentiles did. We're certainly a lot better than the pagans. And so, yes, now, of course, I'm not perfect. I mean, I get it, but I'm like 70%. (laughs) And so I brought more to the table than the Gentile pagans did. And so I am more deserving of your mercy. I still require mercy, don't get me wrong, because of the 30%. But the 70%, you know, got, got me there. So here's what he just said. Gentiles, you were once disobedient, so the clarity of my rescue and my mercy toward you is pretty clear. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel still believe to an extent that because they were the good son, that they deserved the Messiah, and the Messiah came for them, and they are now deserving of my grace. They are not, we know that, but they need to know that, otherwise they will never see my mercy. So, You were once disobedient, and yet I saved you. Now they're being disobedient, and yet I'm going to save them. And when I do, they will know what you know, which is I was disobedient, I was undeserving. In fact, they're going to know that when it mattered most and, and they should have received the Messiah, they rejected him when they shouldn't have. And they're going to grieve their disobedience just as you grieve yours. And there and there alone will you know the mercy of God. 
We only know the mercy of God when we have a clarity of our disobedience. That's why Paul wrote in other occasions, therefore, wherever sin increases, there also grace increases, not meaning sin more so you can have more grace, but meaning see more clearly the depravity of your soul so that you will see more clearly the extent of his grace. The extent of his grace is a direct, has a direct correlation to the extent of your clarity of your own depravity before Jesus rescued you. Now watch, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna wrap this into a beautiful sentence. Watch this. <clears throat> Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience. <clears throat> Here's a perfect clarity of how we so often think that what God is doing seems so unmerciful, right? God has consigned. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Not like God has allowed. No, God has consigned all to disobedience. Doesn't that sound like a lack of mercy? I've consigned all to disobedience. Yes, because in consigning all to disobedience through the story of Adam and Eve, he is also therefore by definition consigned all to severity, consigned all to judgment, consigned all to wrath, consigned all to death, consigned all to the eternal separation from all things good, right, and wonderful from God himself. That is a act of extraordinary unmercy if you don't read the next part of the sentence. <clears throat> God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You see, look, <clears throat> mercy doesn't exist without a clarity of our depravity and he has consigned all to a clarity of their disobedience so that all would have a clarity of his mercy. Because we are all disobedient, let's face it. But we don't think it and we don't know it and we don't believe it. And so he has consigned us all to a clarity of our disobedience, whether we are part of Gentile world or part of ethnic Israel, so that all may have a clarity of his mercy. And why would he do this? Why would he do this? Because it is only in our clarity of his mercy that we will respond in a way that allows us to live freely. Because it is out of a clarity of his mercy that our response will be a response of worship. We will not respond as we saw with the Israelites in a manner worthy of the gospel just because we are given a code. We break codes. But when we are in awe of mercy, we will respond rightly. Watch this. No wonder he writes these words now. <clears throat> oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has brought something to the table for God so that God might give him salvation? Who has brought something to the table for God so that God might show him mercy? Who has brought something to the table to God that he might repay them with grace? Who has counseled him? Who has known his mind? Oh, the depths and wonder and unsearchable realities of God's redemptive grace and mercy. See, this gets better than Romans chapter 8. This is like he's bigger than you thought and his mercy broader, deeper and bigger than you imagined. Oh, who would know the mind of God? Who would know? 
You, you and I so often live in our dailiness and it seems God is responding with lack of mercy, doesn't it? You're struggling with something and you've begged and pleaded and he's not showing up. Your life isn't going the way you thought it should. You don't, you don't see God responding. Things around you, loved ones and you, uh, don't seem to be experiencing the mercy of God. Did it not seem like that throughout all of history? And yet, what does he say? Do not be wise in your own eyes and think that God is not at work because you think you know what he's up to. Has God been faithful for all of history? To all tribes, tongues, and nations, despite their disobedience? Do you think that because of your silly disobedience, God will begin to be unfaithful to you? So stop with the, oh my gosh, because I behave badly, God is punitive now. God is constantly working through every circumstance, relational dynamic, and resource challenge to shape in you the great redemptive work of refining so that you might be exactly who God is gonna finish you to be because he will finish every work he began and he invites you to participate with him in that great work of your own sanctification by being holy and choosing holiness over sin. And he sends you out into the world to preach the gospel not because he needs you, but because he loves you and he wants you to be part of experiencing what it means to carry redemption into a dark world. But you can do it fearlessly because he will author the stories. God is more faithful than we can imagine and so we say these words, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so now, what have we been waiting for? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God. But that is for another time. Let's pray. God, we get it now. We get why Romans chapter 12 verse 1 has been waiting for us for 9, 10, and 11 to finish out. We get now why we needed 9, 10, and 11 to be able to stare deeply into the wonder of your mercy and grace. We understand now why we required this journey in order to understand that whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are from one tribe, tongue, or nation, or another, it is an irrelevancy because... Your mercy is equal. Your grace is extraordinary because our disobedience is the same. And you have consigned us to this clarity of disobedience that we might not lack clarity on your mercy. And as we stare into your mercy as ethnic Israel or as Gentile nations, we stare into your mercy now with clarity, realizing that your mercy is an unconditional gift, not something repaid to us because we brought a gift to you. You have gifted us with faith. You have gifted us with life. You have gifted us with sight. You have made us see. You have made us alive even though we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. And we stand here begging you to increase in us the awe of what we have just heard so that we might live out of the mercies that you have clearly shown us. So I stand here, God, just to say these words, thank you. Thank you that I am a recipient of your mercy and thank you that I 
am a participant in expanding and extending that mercy to others. Remove arrogance from us, remove judgment from us, remove self-righteousness from us, and birth in us only a simple clarity of your mercy that has encountered our depravity and has undone us so that we might be living beings, children of God, to carry the gospel into our workplaces and our social networks and our neighborhoods and our city and our world fearlessly because though we get to participate in the carrying of the gospel, we know that as far as the gospel, we are watching people reject and accept and do their thing. But as far as election, we trust you with the rescuing of those who belong to you. So we go with confidence. We go with wonder. We go with clarity. And we function in the gospel and the gospel alone leaving what is yours to be yours and yours alone. But just knowing that you are faithful, you've got this, and we can trust you. Therefore, in view of your mercy, we come now ready for you to tell us where we go next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.